BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to AgRack. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and I am really excited to have with me today a prior guest who's done fabulous work for us and, in general, has just been doing really great work here at Hopkins as one of my assistant program directors, a fabulous award-winning teacher, and, as it turns out, he is also a member of the MH Hotline. He works for the MH Hotline, which, as he'll tell you, uh, earns him $0.00, so we're not going to list that as a conflict. And that is, of course, the great Dr. Dave Berman. So he's here today to talk about malignant hyperthermia. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to try to uh, avoid the rigid structure of normal ACRAC podcasts. All right. I see what you did there. Well done. Well done. Um, All right. Let's not be triggering if we can avoid it. I'm going to try not to dantra lean on dad jokes this whole time. Fair enough. Um, It wouldn't be you if you didn't do so. All right. Let's start off. uh, Tell us a little bit of the history of malignant hyperthermia and maybe also how you got involved in the um, interest in this and in the malignant hyperthermia hotline. Sure. So um, it's an interesting case. This was was published in 1962 by this guy named Michael Denborough, who was a... an internal medicine doc and a geneticist. Um, And he overheard of a case of a patient who had a tib-fib fracture and was brought into the emergency department for obviously surgery for this tib-fib fracture. And the patient wasn't nervous about his surgery, but what he was really nervous about was the anesthesia because he'd had 10 family members who died during or shortly after anesthesia and usually for minor procedures that were unlikely to cause death. So it wasn't like they had a ruptured AAA. They had uh, really uncomplicated cases, and then they died. So their anesthesiologist at the time for this 21-year-old decided to do the case with the most advanced anesthetic that he had available in 1962 was halothane. So he did a halothane anesthetic, and about 10 minutes into the anesthetic, the patient became hypotensive, tachycardic, cyanotic, felt very hot, and the CO2 absorber was... Uh, exhausted quickly. And initially they thought it was due to blood loss, right? What do we do as anesthesiologists? We say it's probably a volume thing, probably a blood loss thing, but even with a tourniquet, bad things still happen. So they put the patient in an ice bath 
and he recovered spontaneously, survived. But then Dr. Denborough went and got all of the anesthetic records uh, from this patient's family and also got some autopsy reports from some of the 10 relatives who died. And it seemed like they had grossly normal autopsies. The anesthetics were overall uncomplicated and their surgeries were overall uncomplicated. So then Dr. Denborough, as a geneticist, went and actually made a uh, family tree and looked at the relationships of all of these folks. And it looked like the in uh, the pattern for inheritance seemed to be autosomal dominant based on the fact that there was no um, male versus female difference. But interestingly, it seemed like that even though it was autosomal dominant, there were some cases where they presume that a, a parent or grandparent had the gene, but they didn't have this clinical syndrome. So it was a very interesting scenario, and that's where he posited the idea that it was autosomal dominant with variable penetrance. So this 21-year-old ended up surviving his ice bath after his tib-fib fracture, and unfortunately for him, had many, many, many episodes of kidney stones. But fortunately for him, and for us as anesthesiologists, he had his subsequent lithotripsies and eventually his cystoscopies all done under regional anesthesia. And he did great. And not only that, but numerous family members of his also had regional anesthesia and also didn't have this problem. So that, my friends, is why OB anesthesia is the best anesthesia. <laughs> All right. So that is how this was initially discovered and thought about. Um, and then tell us how you got interested and uh, how that led you to the MH hotline. So I had a really interesting case of MH on cardiopulmonary bypass that was sort of unclear because the patient never got hyperthermic and arms were tucked. We never really noticed any muscle rigidity, um, but it responded to dantrolene. And that got me thinking a lot about MH and a lot about hypermetabolic states and rare diseases and anesthesia in general. And I was talking with a friend and the MH hotline, uh, she was on the MH hotline at the time. They like to have anesthesiologists from each subspecialty if possible. Uh, so we have a lot of pediatric anesthesiologists on the hotline, a bunch of intensivists as well, but they only had one OB anesthesiologist. So I was talking with a couple of friends about whether that was possible for me to do. And I talked a little bit more about the logistics of the hotline and all that it entailed. And I decided that I think this work would be really fascinating for me. So I got on the hotline a number of years ago, and it has been deeply fulfilling and really educational work for me. Fabulous. Well, thank you for the work you do. As we mentioned up front, you don't get paid for it, but it's a service you provide. And I remember you saying when I heard you talk about this before that you get, when you're on call, you get anywhere from two up to 20 calls a day from all over the world. So this is not, you know, a small amount of work. Yeah, that's right. So so the hotline started about uh, 40 years ago, uh, and it expanded about 30 years ago. It's staffed by about 30 of us, but three are on call at a time. Um, we are on call for two weeks straight in a, a two-week shift, and up to eight weeks a year is what we're supposed to take um, just to make things equitable. And so some days I'll get one or two calls or zero calls. Um, some days I'll get a lot of calls. So a lot of them are initial concerns. The patient has a fever, but some of them are, uh, you managed this patient's case yesterday. We gave the dantrolene. Now for follow-up, uh, what should we be doing? So a lot of post-acute MH management cases. And then we also have some advice questions. The, the oh, this patient's father had a fever uh, after anesthesia, but also was septic at the time. Should we treat them as MH susceptible? So it's a really interesting 
uh, line of work. Great. All right. Well, let's turn to MH itself. Give us an overview of what MH is. So MH is a hypermetabolic state. Uh, there's a wide variety of clinical presentations, but usually we think about MH in the form of hyperthermia, hypercarbia, muscle rigidity, uh, rhabdomyolysis associated with that, and electrolyte disturbances. And usually on labs, the most common thing we see is a combined respiratory metabolic acidosis. So what you'll see is patients with a high PaCO2 as well as a low bicarb. It's sort of unclear exactly why this develops. Uh, we know that most cases are autosomal dominant with variable penetrance. Most are inherited, some are sporadic. And this hypermetabolic state uh, is triggered by volatile anesthetics or succinylcholine. We know that in the absence of treatment historically, the mortality for untreated MH is north of 70%. And those who did survive were people who either got very lucky or got put in ice baths or all of the above. Um, and now in developed countries with access to dantrolene, our mortality is under 5%. We also know that, that the best thing to do is to avoid an MH crisis. And if one does occur, dantrolene and supportive care are the standards. We also know that delays cause bad outcomes. And in our MH registry, we notice that every 30-minute delay in dantrolene administration increases the complication rate really significantly. It's also kind of annoying in a lot of ways because patients who have a negative history of anesthetic issues doesn't necessarily rule them out for being MH susceptible. We know that probably 40% of anesthetics that are triggering will result in an MH crisis in someone who is underlying susceptibility. But what that means for us is that in the pre-op area, if I ask a patient, tell me about your anesthetic history, and they say, I've had one prior general anesthetic without incident, it's not 100% that this patient won't have MH this time. Now, when you say the sir, the mortality rate is less than 5% in countries that have access to dantrolene, the mortality that still exists, is that because they got the dantrolene too late? Is it because they didn't get it at all? Is it because they got it, but it didn't work? So it's a that's a really good question. And we've done a lot of work um, looking at our registry and then looking at outcomes. Uh, and there have been a lot of cases of fatal arrhythmias associated with hyperkalemia from, from MH. Um, there have been a, certainly a lot of cases of other electrolyte abnormalities and other hemodynamic instability associated with malignant hyperthermia. Um, there have actually been a number of case reports of ECMO being used as a rescue for patients who have severe arrhythmias associated with MH. So the mortalities that occur are probably due to either underlying disease and frailty. Uh, if you have a 90-year-old who's septic on three pressors and then all of a sudden they become severely acidemic, they're probably not going to do well. Um, and some of it may also be due to delays in diagnosis or treatment. Great. All right. Anything else about the epidemiology that you want to say? Well, it's interesting because most people think of MH as a human disease. But it's not just a human disease. It happens in pigs too. Um, it's called porcine stress syndrome in pigs. And interestingly, in pigs, it's not just triggered by volatile anesthetics or sucks, but in pigs, it can also be triggered by stress or periods of excitement. There are lots and lots of reports of porcine stress syndrome being triggered by pigs watching their pen mates 
get tied down for medical procedures. So the stress of watching your pen mate get tied down causes some pigs to go into an MH crisis. It seems that the pigs that are more muscular, which according to some makes them more delicious, are also the ones that are more likely to have this porcine stress syndrome. So it's definitely not just a human phenomenon, but the susceptibility to uh, volatile anesthetics and sucks is a hallmark of the condition. It doesn't seem like it's racially or ethnically predominant. Uh, Probably one in two or one in 3,000 people is susceptible to MH. But remember that even then, you have to give an anesthetic to a patient who's MH susceptible. It has to be a triggering anesthetic, and they have to be a little unlucky that they're one of those people who responds and gets an MH crisis when triggered. And if you think about the cases that we do, a lot of our cases in the OR are non-triggering, whether we run TIVA or whether we do purely regional or regional with sedation, whether we do um, pain procedures, whether we do um, uh, sedation only, um, a lot of our anesthetics that we run are non-triggering in any case. So chances are, if you're a practicing anesthesiologist or a CRNA listening, there's a really good chance that you've taken care of a lot of MH-susceptible patients and just not known it. Great. So... They're out there. It's one in 2,000 to one in 3,000. As you say, we probably all have had a patient that's susceptible, whether or not we've actually seen the crisis. And also, I remember you saying this is a spectrum. So you may have actually seen someone have malignant hypothermia. It just wasn't the full-blown version where you needed to give the dantrolene, right? And you, you even mentioned when we were talking about this that uh, you know it's possible that people who get a particularly intense myalgic reaction to sucks may be on the really mild end of the spectrum. Yeah, and it, it, this is very much um, a, a recognition question, right? So we know that based on epidemiologic studies, we we think we know how likely someone is to be MH susceptible, but it's entirely possible that plenty of people have mild reactions under anesthesia, a mild postoperative fever that in the USMLE step one world, we would call atelectasis, right? The mild fever after uh, an operation that has otherwise no known cause that may actually be on this spectrum. And it's really tough to tell for sure because most of these patients get better on their own or they get diagnosed with something else or they come to our attention. So the, the the numerator of people who have severe enough MH that we get a hotline call, the numerator we know, the denominator is much more difficult to come by. Yep. All right. Tell me a little more about the mechanism and genetics of this syndrome. So we know that uh, we don't know all about it, all that we can about it. We know that it's a disorder of cytosolic calcium control, and it seems like it's mostly cytosolic calcium control under stress, skeletal muscle being the most impacted. And that might explain why uh, muscular patients tend to maybe get um, get diagnosed with MH more frequently and why even though it's an autosomal condition, men are diagnosed with MH about two-thirds of all cases that come to the hotline are men as compared with women, maybe because of some muscle or muscle distribution differences. There are also a few myopathies with MH susceptibility that are autosomal recessive, but most cases are autosomal dominant. Uh, on the your boards, certainly, people talk about ryanidine receptor defects, and that's probably a half or maybe a little more than that of all MH-related uh, mutations. But there are lots of other different 
um, genetic loci that are associated with MH, and many new pathogenic variants are being discovered yearly. And the frustrating part is that 20 to 30% of patients who've had a confirmed MH event who undergo genetic testing test negative for these known genes. All right. So still a lot to be kind of discovered here um, for sure, but you know, it's, it's good work that's being done. So let's talk about the testing. What can be done? How do we know if somebody has it and what should people think about? So from a testing perspective, there are two big and broad categories of tests. The first is genetic testing. And the second is some sort of contracture testing. And there's certainly a solid role for both approaches. And we'll talk about them each individually. But before we talk about each test, I think it's important to know who we should test. So if you have a personal history of something that may have been MH, so you have a history that's suspicious for MH, or you have severe masseter muscle rigidity during succinylcholine, uh, or you have unexplained rhabdo or a high fever following a triggering anesthetic, you should probably get tested. Um, if you have a family history of those things or a family history of an MH-susceptible relative, you should probably get tested. If you have a history of some other associated conditions, for instance, patients who have multiple episodes of unexpected exertional rhabdo. So I don't mean the person who runs an ultra marathon at 110 degree heat. I mean the person who uh, runs and tries to catch the bus or the subway and then it has sore muscles for a week and has dark urine. Those people should be tested. Similarly, if you're put on a statin, and you have really high CK levels, and you have severe statin-induced myopathy, you should also be tested. Um, and lastly, patients who are considering military service, MH susceptibility is a disqualifying condition for service in the U.S. Armed Forces. So there's a lower threshold to test people who are considering military service because of that uh, risk. So from, a, con from a, a, a testing perspective, the two big tests are contracture testing, like we said, with a muscle biopsy, and genetic testing. For muscle biopsy testing, a patient has to go to a center that does this. And there are not many centers around the world because it's a bit of a production. You make a four to six inch incision in the patient's lateral thigh. A surgeon removes a biopsy of the vastus lateralis muscle. The muscle has to be kept alive for the contracture testing. So it has to be done in the same place that the lab is being run. You put the muscle in an oxygenated bath, it's separated out into these strips, and then it's exposed to different RYR1 agonists, and the contraction strength is measured. The problem is, like we mentioned, it's a surgery. It's not a small deal, and it leaves a scar, and it takes a decent amount of muscle, and it's pretty invasive. It's also very expensive, probably on the order of about $20,000, and not all insurances cover it. Um, you also have to wait three to six months after an MH event before you can do a contracture test. Otherwise, the test is not particularly sensitive. And so contracture testing is the gold standard. It's about 95 plus percent sensitive, uh, but it's only about 80 to 90 percent specific. So if patients have a positive contracture test, we basically say they rule in for MH susceptibility, even though maybe one in five of those folks might not actually. But that's contracture testing. And what role does caffeine play? So caffeine is the positive control, at least in my understanding. I am not a chemist, but my understanding is that caffeine will cause muscle contractions, and that's our positive control. And so you expose to caffeine, 
and then you expose to halothane to measure the contraction relative to caffeine. I know there are there are currently two tests that are done. There's the caffeine halothane contracture test, which is done in North America, and there's the in vitro contracture test, which is more commonly done in Europe. There are academic differences, and there are significant protocol differences in both of them, but they they both revolve around taking a large straight muscle biopsy and exposing it to certain agonist agents and measuring contraction. The sensitivity and specificity for both are relatively similar, though not exactly the same. Okay, great. So that's the biopsy test. That's right. And then... So the genetic testing is the other option. Uh, It's a lot easier because most patients haven't had a muscle biopsy, but most patients have had blood work or a cheek swab. So the procedure for genetic testing is that you take a blood sample and or a cheek swab. Most of the time it's done via blood. And that genetic testing panel is performed focusing on known MH causative mutations. It's tough to know the denominator. It's tough to know the sensitivity, but it's probably on the order of 60 to 80% meaning that 60 to 80% of patients who will go on to have a positive contracture test or have a known MH case in the OR, probably 60 to 80% of those will have a positive genetic test. So you can get three different results from your genetic testing. The first is no DNA variation found. Doesn't rule out MH, but you don't have one of the known causes. The other result is a mutation associated with MH. You have a classic mutation that's long been associated with malignant hyperthermia, and those people most would advocate to stop there, just treat them as susceptible, and then test their family members for that mutation. The third result that you could get is a variant of unknown significance. The patient has an RYR1 mutation, but we don't know whether it's associated with MH, but it's different than the average population, at which point a lot of people would argue that we should be muscle biopsying these folks. The important thing for that is that we know whether they're susceptible, but you can also contribute to the literature. If it's a variant of unknown significance and the patient later goes on to have MH susceptibility based on a contracture test, then you just found a new variant. Congratulations. That's really important to show the rest of the community. Great. All right. So you walked us through the testing. If you are concerned for yourself, starting with genetic testing seems like a great and relatively non-invasive option. And then obviously, as you laid out, there are times where you may want to think about a muscle biopsy. And it's also important to know that in in patients who come to us and they say, you know, my sister had this weird thing with anesthesia, you would be tempted to test the person who came to you. But really, we should be thinking about testing the affected patient first, if possible. Because from a pretest probability perspective, if, you, if your patient has a known MH event, say they have a really uh, uh, they had a textbook MH event, I would want to test that patient for genetic testing first, and then test their family because the pretest probability of a positive test in them is the highest. So, what I will often say if someone says to me, um, "Oh, I, my my great uncle had malignant hyperthermia." what should I do? My first question is, is your great uncle still alive? Because if not, then it's moot. But if your great uncle's still alive, get them genetically tested. If you know what mutation they have, test the rest of the family. And presumably, if you're negative for that mutation, but your great uncle was positive and it was a causative mutation, then you're done. So you should definitely test the affected patient first, 
if possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's talk about prevention and treatment. What do we counsel people in terms of how to make sure we prevent having an MH crisis? All right, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me, and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All right, and we're back with Dr. Berman talking about prevention and treatment. So if you have a patient who's MH susceptible, it's really important to avoid volatile anesthetics and sucks. And that sounds really easy, but so much of our cognitive workflow is based on routine. So when I have a patient who's uh, MH susceptible, not only do I just say, okay, I'm not using my volatiles, I actually take the vaporizers off the machine and I put them outside the OR. I also take all of the sucks out of our Pixis machine and out of the top drawer of our uh, anesthesia cart, which uh, very, very much angers our anesthesia techs and our pharmacy staff. But I want to make it so that it's really, really idiot-proof to take care of these patients. There are some centers that have dedicated anesthesia machines that have never touched a volatile anesthetic. That's great if your center has one of those. Most do not. Some centers have a policy of using an ICU vent. So they won't even connect up an anesthesia machine at all. Most centers use existing anesthesia machines, and it can be kind of a pain to prepare. You change the circuit, which we normally do anyway. You change the CO2 absorbent, which is not a big deal. But then you have to flush the machine for a long time. And how long is a long time? A long time, like more than a coffee break, more than a lunch break, more than most appendectomies. So depending on the machine, some manufacturers recommend up to a 90-minute or longer flush. So there are charcoal filters, and I should clarify that I have zero financial uh, conflicts of interest in this talk, but there are charcoal filters made by a company called VaporClean that instead of having to run the circuit for 90 minutes at high flows after changing everything out, you just put these filters on the inspiratory and expiratory limb. They have activated charcoal, and they scavenge all of your anesthetics down to less than five parts per million with just a 90-second flush. So in our workflow at Hopkins, this has really made our lives so much easier. We put on vapor clean filters on these circuits. You can run them as low as a fresh gas flow of three liters a minute. And we typically replace them every 12 hours. That's what uh, what the manufacturer has recommended. So what we do is we get our volatiles and sucks out of the room, uh, change the CO2 absorbent, change the, um, the circuit, put on the vapor clean filters, flush for 90 seconds and go. Uh, there are also some places, and we try to do this for elective MH-susceptible patients, to have them be done as the first case 
of the day. You can't always do that, um, but to have them at least thought uh, to be done in a relatively clean machine. That makes sense. All right. So prevention is don't expose them to volatile anesthetic or sucks. If we have a patient have what we think is malignant hyperthermia, how do we treat? So the big picture, as you mentioned, is avoidance, right? And, and it's important to know that if you have an MH susceptible patient, you should have dantrolene available and you should be looking for early signs of MH. If you don't catch it until the CO2, the PACO2 is 70 uh, and the temp is 39, the, that horse has left the barn. So looking for early signs, and a lot of anesthesia machines will let you check oxygen uptake. They'll let you do a VO2. Um, and so looking for that can be really helpful. Looking at your CO2 trend over time relative to your minute ventilation can be really helpful, um, especially if you're not sure of the diagnosis. Uh, but if a patient does have a crisis, early recognition is key. So you should stop the case if feasible. If you're on bypass, don't say, all right, let's stop the bypass machine. But if you're doing a case that's totally elective and you've just insufflated the abdomen and done nothing else, you should probably desufflate, close, and get out of dodge. Um, definitely continue the case with Tiva, stopping all triggering anesthetic agents. Put the patient on a high flow, 100% oxygen with those vapor clean filters if possible. Um, monitor the patient's temperature. And by that, I don't mean a skin temp. I mean a real monitoring of the patient's temperature. Don't bother changing the circuit or the CO2 absorbent. It just wastes time. And we should be giving these patients dantrolene as early as you think you're dealing with MH. And our typical dose is 2.5 per kilo as an initial IV bolus, but some patients require multiple boluses. And in preparation for management of this patient, we know that patients who have MH are likely to have electrolyte disturbances in addition to rhabdo, um, in addition to all sorts of other metabolic derangements. And so we recommend placing an arterial line and a Foley if feasible, aggressive fluid hydration, checking CKs, blood gases, potassium, glucose, and renal function, and be on the lookout for arrhythmias when they occur. You, I assume uh, this comes up a lot, I think, on boards. You might be tempted um, if the patient's hypotensive and you're used to having calcium be one of your kind of pressors to think about giving calcium, not something you want to do in these patients. Probably not a great idea. Yeah. Um, and then other things that we typically think about, um, aggressive cooling. I know you are a vanilla ice fan. So ice, ice baby is the way to go. Um, we treat hyperkalemia and arrhythmias. We generally want to avoid calcium channel blockers for these folks. Um, if the patient is hyperkalemic, giving calcium is not a bad answer for stabilizing myocardial membranes, but avoiding calcium channel blockers. Uh, you may be tempted to give verapamil or diltiazem in, a, in, a, in arrhythmia. Um, and that's something you really want to avoid in these folks. A lot of these patients end up needing bicarb. A lot of these patients end up needing insulin and dextrose for treatment of hyperkalemia as well. In terms of management post-op, uh, whether to extubate or not is controversial. Um, if the patient's doing really well, got the dantrolene, is trending in the right direction, there's nothing wrong with extubating the patient. Um, but you want to keep that patient in-house for at least 24 hours. And we recommend continuing dantrolene for at least 24 hours. The dosing is a little controversial, uh, but we recommend continuing dantrolene for at least 24 hours and checking all sorts of labs at least every couple hours until things get better, in addition to monitoring temperature regularly. So clinically, what that looks like for us at Hopkins is if a patient has MH, we almost always end up bringing them to the ICU with continuous temperature monitoring, 
put in an arterial line and we'll check blood gases every four hours or so, potassium and glucose every four hours or so. Um, and then we typically recommend giving dantrolene um, via an intermittent bolus, so one milligram per kilo every four to six hours. Um, but there are certain situations in which maybe an infusion would be better. This is also why you call the MH hotline. Great. And is the idea of continuing to give the dantrolene that you can have, even if it's resolved, it can recrudesce later? Recrudescence is certainly a thing. Um, and it's sort of unclear exactly who's likely to recrudesce, but it's certainly a thing. And so we see this not infrequently is you give your initial dose of dantrolene, things get better. Uh, bicarb comes back up, CO2 comes down, uh, temperature comes down. And then a couple hours later, the bicarb starts to drop again. The CO2 starts to rise a little bit. And so a lot of patients end up needing help through that acute and post-acute phase. Um, and so that's why we recommend um, dantrolene be given uh, as uh, a matter of course, rather than just in case or ra rather just when it happens, uh, but there are some experts who recommend not continuing dantrolene for 24 hours. Our general stance is that you should. Great. The question comes up sometimes, let's say you have someone who you're concerned about, maybe they've got a, you know, a family history of something. Um, would you pre-treat with dantrolene before an anesthetic? So dantrolene is not a benign drug. Um, it certainly causes muscle weakness. That's part and parcel of what it does is, is alters calcium channel stuff. And it's actually given for patients with spasticity um, associated with certain neuromuscular disorders. It's usually given PO um, for patients with cerebral palsy or, or other spastic um, neurologic disorders. It's not a benign drug. If infiltrated, it can cause some really nasty skin stuff. Um, and it's not cheap and not easy to come by. Uh, hospitals have limited supplies. We generally don't recommend dantrolene pretreatment. The risk of MH, if you have a susceptible patient, if you run an anesthetic that's not MH triggering, the risk of MH should be zero. So I, a bunch of our, our colleagues at Hopkins joke that if an MH susceptible patient develops MH, it's not their fault, it's our fault. And there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, all right. Anything else about the treatment? And then maybe we can do some cases. So it's interesting. Dantrolene, 20, 30 years ago, I remember when I had my first case of dantrolene in the OR, um, the formulation of dantrolene was this massive vial of what looked like a huge amount of chalk. And so we had to mix 60 cc's of sterile water just to get 20 milligrams of dantrolene. And so for your average 70 kilo patient, that's a lot of vials. And it took a good few minutes to even mix this dantrolene together to get one vial. And so it took a lot of people. The early uh, MH cases uh, that have been reported, and, and part of the reason why we say call for help early and get the dantrolene is because it took a dozen people to mix up the dantrolene vials just so you could give the amount of dantrolene that you need for a patient. Um, now And that dantrolene also was packaged with a lot of mannitol, um, but it was a lot of volume. And so you were giving 60 cc's per vial. You were giving 10 vials of that. Patient may not necessarily have a great IV. Um, takes a long time to mix all that stuff up. It's not ideal, especially if you're giving multiple doses. So our new era has arrived. Ryanidex is our newest formulation of dantrolene. And again, I have no financial conflicts of interest. Uh, but Ryanidex is 250 milligrams in five cc's, of, mixed with five cc's of sterile water. 
So whereas it used to take a dozen people 20 minutes to mix up dantrium, now it takes you under a minute to mix your typical dose of dantrolene for your 100 kilo patients. You can get all of it in, in a matter of a minute or two, as opposed to way, way longer. So it's a huge, huge advantage. Um, and the stuff can be stored. Uh, when I was a resident, we had an MH cart that had a refrigerator because we kept all those vials of sterile water in the fridge because it was so much volume. Now, a lot of places have Ryanidex in their Pixis in the OR or have an MH starter kit that has the vapor clean filters and just a couple of vials of Ryanidex. And it's a tackle box. It's no longer this massive cart with a refrigerator on it. Yep. That's a hugely positive change. I remember I haven't, I never had to do it, but I remember hearing about people having to mix those, you know, 10 vials and took forever. And, and, and it's a legendary production, right? And, and there are very few diseases in anesthesia that we ourselves can own. If you think about it, we take care of a lot of patients with aortic stenosis. We take care of a lot of patients with sepsis or septic shock, but those aren't anesthesia conditions. MH is one of the few diseases, and some would argue the only disease that we as an anesthesia specialty own on our own. Yep. Maybe PONV, but other than postoperative nausea and vomiting, um, we are the owners of malignant hyperthermia. Yep. And good that we're working on trying to make it a thing of the past as much as we can. All right. Why don't we look at some cases that you think are interesting and, and how we might think through them? Yeah, I'm sure you're, uh, I'm sure you're burning up to hear this part of the talk. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. So I, I got an interesting call recently. Um, the, the person on the other end of the line said, hey, I'm a CRNA in training. My brother had an exposure to anesthetic and had very concerning for MH. Very believable story. I've never had a triggering exposure before. But I'm training to be a CRNA I'm going to be around a lot of volatile anesthetics. Should I drop out of school? Yeah, really interesting question. So the questions there are, does being around off-gassing, whether that's a patient in the PACU breathing it out, whether that's doing an inhaled induction with a kid, um, whether that's just your mask ventilating with some uh, volatile and it's leaking out into the OR, we all have smelled SIBO, right? At various times while we're masking or whatever, is that going to trigger this person potentially if she in fact is MH susceptible to having malignant hyperthermia? Um, so my thought is probably not because we don't have a lot of anesthesia providers dropping dead in the OR and developing MH. And there's, as you said, it's one in 2000, one in 3000. So there would be people who are CRNAs or anesthesiologists or anesthesia residents or med students in the OR who would be exposed to this. So my, my thought is probably it's not a thing, but you tell me. Yeah, and that's sort of what we came to um, is, is it, it's probably not a thing. Um, and it's not just the anesthesia folks in the room, right? But if you look at the number of people who are exposed to a patient who's maybe being deeply extubated um, – OR ventilation is actually quite good. We know that you have a minimum number of air changes per hour in the OR, so that's less concerning. But what about the PACU? If you have your usual uh, pediatric orthopedic case that gets a deep LMA pull and is off-gassing in the PACU for an hour, um, chances are the PACU doesn't have nearly as good ventilation. And there are a lot of PACU nurses who stand over those patients and 
None of them seem to develop MH. So it seems like secondary exposure is really, really, really uncommon, and there have not been many reported cases. So that's basically what we said is it's not feasible to take a job as an anesthesia provider and say, I can't do an awake, uh, I mean, a mask induction. I can't do a deep extubation. I can only do non-triggering cases. So my answer to this person was, you're probably fine. Because like you said, if that were a thing, we'd have a lot of circulating nurses and anesthesiologists and CRNAs all dropping. But also, I recommended that her brother get tested. He have genetic testing, know what mutation he has, if any, and then test her. And if he's positive and she's negative, then that's a pretty good comforting statistic. Yep. That makes sense. All right. Let's do another one. So I had another interesting call. Uh... The anesthesiologist called me uh, saying that the patient came to L&D four hours prior to this phone call, had breach presentation in active labor, uh, did not want an external cephalic version. The OBs didn't want an external cephalic version. They wanted a C-section. She was on Lovenox for a prior venous thrombomolic disease uh, in pregnancy, so neuraxial was unfortunately not an option because she took her Lovenox four hours before. And the patient had had multiple prior anesthetics without incident, multiple triggering without incident. But unfortunately, her partner had had confirmed MH, not one of these, my grandfather had a fever afterwards, but actual confirmed MH, the real deal. So then the question was, how do we treat mom? Mom is presumably not susceptible, but the human inside of her might be. It's an interesting question. It's really interesting. Um, now, I think, you know, people would say, obviously, you don't have to use gas on the woman. You could do propofol. What about induction? Are you going to use sucks? And, you know, I think we're always taught sucks doesn't cross the placenta. But is that 100%? So you tell me, what do you say here? Yeah. So I, I think most of us, uh, as some of our listeners might know, I'm, I'm an obstetric anesthesiologist. And so most of the the C-sections that we do under general at my institution are done under TIVA. Um, we sometimes use sucks. A lot of the time end up using rock or Remy for intubation. Um, so it's not a huge ask to ask someone to do a non-triggering anesthetic for a C-section. So I would definitely not use volatile in this scenario, at least not until the baby's out and the cord is clamped. I'm not sure why you would necessarily switch to volatile afterwards, but I certainly wouldn't use it while the baby's still inside. The question of sucks is an interesting question, and the MH community is a little divided on this, because like you said, sucks doesn't cross the placenta in appreciable quantities enough to cause um, muscle weakness in the fetus, but is it enough to trigger MH? We know that some crosses, how much is too much is sort of an open question. So my general practice and my recommendation for this is unless there's a good reason to avoid rock or a good reason to avoid Remy, you should probably just use an alternative uh, strategy for induction and intubation and run a non-triggering anesthetic. That's my answer, but some of our consultants would say that sucks is okay. I don't think anyone would advocate for using volatile anesthetics in this case, though. Great. Makes sense to me. But if you could do neuraxial, that would be preferred. That would be ideal. But unfortunately, that's not always a possibility. Right. All right. Fabulous. Give me another one. So next case I got was a parasophageal hernia repair uh, in an otherwise healthy person. The end tidal CO2 kept climbing 
despite the fact that the team was increasing their minute ventilation. Unfortunately, the arms were tucked at the sides. It was a robotic case. The legs were in lithotomy, under drapes, no easy way to place additional IV access or an arterial line. And with this hypercarbia was some tachycardia and hypertension, which is really concerning in a case where you're exposing the patient to volatile anesthetics. So this was an interesting question. So Jed, what do you think? Well, I think anytime we have an insufflation case, right, a case done laparoscopically, in the belly, certainly in the chest, we have some CO2 absorption by the body, right? So we, people who've done these know your CO2 is going to climb. You're going to end up adjusting your minute ventilation up to deal with that. That's just standard. So my first question in this case is, is that what we're dealing with or is it more? And so, you know, I think my, my gut would be to say, could we just pause the insufflation and see what happens? And if that doesn't make it go down, then I'm more concerned. Yeah. And I think that makes perfect sense. Um, so that's what I recommended. I certainly recommended that you monitor temperature. If this patient's temp was 42, then I would be much more concerned that this is an MH event. But this patient's temperature was normal. So what I recommended is exactly that. Pause insufflation and see if with just less CO2 going into the body, if CO2 production out was altered. And I also asked them to check for any sub-Q emphysema. And I was told that the patient had Rice Krispies treats all up and down their arms and their chest and their neck, and all the way up into their face. So in that case, it's most likely due to CO2 that's from an exogenous source. Another thing you can do is you can look at your um, difference between your inspired and expired oxygen on your vent. That'll give you an idea for what the patient's metabolic demands are. So if they have a very high gap between their inspired and expired oxygens, uh, that will tell you that their VO2 is quite high, that they're a hypermetabolic state. Um, this patient, thankfully, they paused insufflation, and then the CO2 started dropping. So that was really reassuring, but this is a not uncommon scenario. Great. All right. That makes sense. What's next? Uh, I had a patient who was a healthy, something 40-year-old, uh, unfortunately was in a motorcycle accident, um, ended up needing to get intubated in the trauma bay uh, due to neurotrauma. Um, Etomidate and sucks two days prior, was never taken to the OR and was undergoing brain death evaluation due to a poor neurologic status. And I'm thinking this is not a great story, but then his temp was 106 and they're actively cooling him, but his temp was still quite high. So then the question that we got asked is, was it the sucks? Yeah. Interesting. So I guess the question would be, what else, what else do we know? What's the CK? Um, what's the CO2? Yeah, right. So that was interesting. And, and the CK was normal. And the first CO2 that they read back to me was in the 60s, which seems really high. And then I asked, what was the context of that CO2? But it was apnea testing for brainstem death. Mm. And so as you know, and as I'm sure some of our listeners know, I know that we've discussed the, the process of organ donation uh, on this podcast before, but when the patient is undergoing brainstem uh, death criteria, one of the things that we do is connect up their, en their endotracheal tube to high flow oxygen and essentially leave them apneic oxygenation. And we expect the CO2 to rise and diagnostic criteria is generally a PaCO2 that rises more than 20 without intrinsic ventilation. So this PaCO2 in the 60s was actually diagnostic for brain death among other criteria. But with 
assisted ventilation at appropriate for this patient's body size and weight, um, their minute ventilation was appropriate and the CO2 was in the 30s. So at that case, it's unlikely to be MH. Right? We always think to ourselves, is this succinylcholine-mediated um, MH? Uh, and this seems really unlikely. It certainly seems like he had some hypothalamic dysfunction um, from some uh, really significant neurotrauma, but it's really unlikely to be malignant hyperthermia. Makes sense to me. All right, let's do one more. What do you got? So one more. This was a really interesting case. Uh, Though I'm biased, I think all of these are interesting. A young guy presented for an urgent appendectomy for acute appendicitis. Shortly after the case started, he was severely hypertensive, tachycardic, hypercarbic. Uh, so this sort of pan-sympathetic elevation, unresponsive, unresponsive to the deepening of his anesthetic, which was concerning. Um, I got called a little late into this process, but the patient had no muscle rigidity, was afebrile, but they were concerned enough that they gave dantrolene. Uh, they ended up giving four doses of 2.5 per kilo. And we generally say on the hotline, that if you've given more than 10 per kilo and you still don't have a resolution of symptoms, you may be barking up the wrong tree because it's pretty unlikely that you'll need more than four of our initial doses in order to achieve a clinical remission. And so we got to the point where I was thinking to myself, like, what else could cause hypertension, tachycardia, hypercarbia? Um, and I asked, is there anything else in this guy's history that would be concerning? And there was nothing else really concerning in the history. Um, and then I asked them to review the CT scan. And the CT, which was done for appendicitis, so it was abdomen, pelvis, um, showed an adrenal mass. And so it was sort of unclear to me, right? It, it, it this certainly sounds like a FIO. It looks like a FIO. It sounds like a FIO. It didn't respond to dantrolene and there was no fever, no muscle rigidity. Um, but it sounds a lot like a FIO. Sounds like a FIO to me too. So the patient ended up getting um, markers uh, and did in fact have a FIO. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So there are other things that can cause this. <laughs> and it's important to know also just for, for everybody to remember that if you give someone with a fever – dantrolene, their temperature will drop. But that could be true of my kid who has the flu. If I give someone dantrolene and they have a fever, their temp is going to drop. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have MH. It has to be in association with lots and lots of other things because dantrolene will cause uh, shivering thermogenesis to stop. So your, your temperature elevation is going to stop, but that doesn't actually mean that the patient has MH. Yeah. It's good to remember. All right. This has been great. Dave, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. What do you have to recommend to the audience? So my wife and I are really, really big Ted Lasso fans. We are mourning the end of Ted Lasso. Uh, so we've tried to find a new show and we were really big fans of the first season, maybe a little less the second season, of The Righteous Gemstones, which is a show that's on the the channel formerly known as HBO Max that's now just Max. Um, it's a great show. It's a little dark, but it's a great show. Uh, so in, in lieu of Ted Lasso, uh, I'm going to go with The Righteous Gemstones. Awesome. I have not heard of it, but uh, we'll check it out. All right. I am going to recommend a book I just finished. Fantastic book. It's called A Long Petal of the Sea by Isabel Allende. And it is a historical novel, beautifully written, about 
some people who kind of come of age during the Spanish Civil War, how that plays out, and then uh, as Franco takes over, they leave, go to Chile, and then they are there through um, the rise of Pinochet's dictatorship and how their lives play out. So it's got some really interesting, accurate history, but also just a really interesting story of the lives of these people, and it's beautifully told. So I recommend it, A Long Petal of the Sea. All right, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me again. I appreciate it. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.